Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. So W. Kamau Bell is a successful guy. He's a stand-up comic. He's had a few albums, some specials. He's hosted not one but two television shows. His latest, The United Shades of America, won him an Emmy. But his dad's no slouch either. He was the insurance commissioner for the state of Alabama, which at the time made him the highest-ranking black public official in the state. And Kamau's dad's journey wasn't easy. He was a college dropout at one point. He had kids at an early age. Life was tough for a while. And so, enter a teenage Kamau who had it much easier growing up. His dad saw to that. Kamau's in college, a really good one, and he's having second thoughts about school. And I think he's looking at me like, you don't have to go through all that. You don't have to be a college dropout. And you can actually just start out and just do go to college, finish. I got into an Ivy League college. He was like, oh my God, your whole life is set now that you're in this Ivy League college. And then when I dropped out after a year and a half, I, and then a year and a half after that, I was like, I think I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. He was just like, you're wasting all of the potential you had. <laughs> like, you know, I, like, you're disappointing every dead black person in our family right now. It's Bullseye. Coming up, W. Kamau Bell. I'll talk with him about his show, a documentary series called United Shades of America on CNN. Kamau recently did an episode with his dad, traveling down to the South to talk with him. For me, it was about, like, after the election, people are really condescending to the South. I think I can put a different spin on this because I spent a lot of time there. But at the same time, I want to actually be more personal in the episode. I don't. People call me the host of United Shades, and it's like, I don't really feel like the host. I feel like it's just like, come have this adventure with me. Then Mike Pesca, the NPR sports commentator and podcast host, just compiled a terrific new book. It's called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. But he says it's more than just what-ifs. Because usually what-if just means if only, you know, if only this guy hadn't gotten hurt or that referee hadn't blown the call, then our team would have won championships. But if we applied some structure and some rules, we went from if only, and I, I can't believe my team has, you know, blown eight drafts in a row, to what I think are 31 interesting chapters for everyone to consider that include things like rippling throughout history and history lessons or just, you know, flat-out funny bits of whimsy. And finally, a tribute to a ferocious genius, the greatest of American singers. All of that coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest is W. Kamau Bell. Now, Kamau and I go way back, like close to 20 years. When I was still doing this show at UC Santa Cruz, Kamau was a young up-and-coming comic in the Bay Area. He actually once co-hosted the show with me. I mean, for real, way back. Anyway, He's gone from hosting at the Punchline in downtown San Francisco to having specials and comedy albums and touring a bunch. In 2012, he got his own TV show, Totally Biased, with W. Kamau Bell on FX and FXX. Totally Biased was kind of a talk show, kind of a political, satirical show, too. But unlike, say, The Daily Show, Kamau wasn't really inclined to get out in front of the audience and give the man what for from his perspective. He actually let other people on staff do that. Kamau just kind of asked questions, funny ones, serious ones, bemused ones, and that was what made the show really special. Today, he hosts another show. It's called United Shades of America. It airs on CNN. It's a great show. It's actually up for an Emmy this year in the unstructured reality programming category. Last year, he won it. And I like to think that that is because Kamau is such a wonderful host. United Shades is basically a show about asking questions, about warmly engaging with everything that the United States is. In the same way that a guy like Anthony Bourdain would travel across continents to elevate and explore the traditions of some remote cultural group, Kamau does the same thing right here in the U.S. He covers issues in people in our country who I guess you can say aren't used to getting a lot of nuanced news coverage. Folks like Six or Appalachian coal miner families, or, in this clip, inmates at San Quentin, a prison in Northern California. 
What would you say is the biggest surprise, would you think that would surprise people on the outside about being in San Quentin? The name itself is not the characters that it produces anymore. Yeah. They actually produce positive people now. You know yes, you yes. Know? Some people come in, couldn't read, write, spell. Yeah. Now you walk around, they're geniuses now. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Since so, you don't have cell phones, you need somebody to be walking around to be the computer. Oh, yeah, ain't no doubt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you need somebody who's, who's, <laughs> whose nickname is Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> so they can give you information. Like, yeah. they keep you, you know, yeah. aware. You know, yeah. they make us think that we're still part of some sort of yeah. humanity. Yeah, because in, other than that, we just be numbers on the yard. Yeah, numbers on the yard. Yeah, just numbers on the yard. You know? well, what's your sentence? Well, I got a seven to life. How long you been in here? Oh, I'm on my 40th year right now. Seven to life and you're on your 40th year? 40th year, yeah. Wow. Same thing I said every morning. I get up yeah. wow. Yeah. Kamal, welcome back to Bullseye. It's nice to talk to you again. I'm glad to be here. It's been a while. Thanks for having me back on. You, uh, well, I mean, you're pretty much emeritus at this point. Yes. Um, <laughs> Super senior. The time 15 years ago when you drove to Santa Cruz to co-host the show with me, uh, yes. You pretty much earned a lifetime pass. Well, you know what? I, I could see even back then, I was like, this guy's got something going on. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna invest in this young man and see where it takes him. Kamau, I have a question for you. You are one of the biggest dudes I know. <laughs> um, I think don't think you're quite as big as comedian Steve Agee. But besides no, that. No, no, no. I'm not that I, tall. I may, I may weigh the same, but I'm not that tall. I think you're the second biggest dude I know. You're you're like what? You're like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, something like that? I'm 6'4", uh, you know, in the Fletch sense, 6'6", six, six with the afro, but I'm 6'4", <laughs> if, you, if you measure into the afro. Yeah, and I'm about like, as I say, you know, uh, you know, I, I say 250, and now I realize that was before I had kids. So, yeah, I'm definitely bigger <laughs> than 250 now. I'm, I'm, I'm basically Charles Barkley size when and he was in his prime. Not at the end, but in his prime. <laughs> you're broad-shouldered. You're not, uh, you're not uh, no. just dad-bodied. Uh, how do you think that has affected your life? You know, it's funny. I think there's a couple things. It's uh, one, when I became a teenager and I hit my growth spurt, which I was like 5'10 in the eighth grade, which is tallish, but not tall. But then when I, like, when I got to, like, you know, maybe sophomore year of high school, I was like 6'1. And I think that was like, suddenly I realized I was basically looked perceived as an adult at that point, even though I was like, you know, 14, 15 years old. I knew that in the world, I was perceived as a threat by people. So. I think for a lot of that, that means that, like, as a comedian, and I think this came from me in my life, first of all, I always knew how to sort of, like, when I met people, how to, like, just sort of, like, okay, relax, calm down, I'm a friendly presence. <laughs> like, I think that's something that I learned how to do very quickly, uh, is sort of to let people know that even though I was gigantic, I was your friend. Yeah, I mean, I was really struck watching the episode of your show, United Shades of America, uh, that you shot in Mobile, Alabama, where you spent a lot of time as a kid and as a young man because your father lived there and lives there, that when you were standing next to your dad, your dad it was insurance commissioner of the state of Alabama, and he has what I might describe as a regal bearing. Mm. <laughs> yes, that's that might be different for me, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, your bearing is a little bit more like mine, right? Like I'm yeah. I'm only 6'3", I'm a little smaller than you, and I'm white, so I think people, I, my appearance carries a little less baggage uh, in the United States. People are a little, uh, there's a little, uh, uh, some fewer preconceptions about who I yeah. might be as a big white guy than I, if I was a big black guy. <laughs> yes, that's true, yeah. Other people carry your baggage, that's what you get when you're a big white guy. <laughs> But, like, I think that, you know, sometimes people are like, why don't you stand up straighter? And when you're this size, I think standing up straight, it kind of freaks people out. Well, it's funny you mentioned my dad because I think my dad, you know, he grew up in a different era than me. He was certainly, he was born in 1943. And I think his, him growing up was like, I'm going to stand up as straight as humanly possible because you will not think that you're in any way intimidating me. And I think he's growing up again in Alabama, Mobile, Alabama. So I think his standing up like stock straight is his way of saying like, I am not, I'm not even trying to be your equal. I'm trying to be your superior. And I think that's how he's led his life. Like I, I, I I'm not trying to be as good as you. I'm trying to be better than you. Whereas on my side, growing up, starting being born in 1973, I grew up in this era of like, having to maneuver through the world in a different way and also being different than my dad and going like, I can stand up straight if I need to. And me and my wife talk about that standing to my full height. Like there's times when I will get into situations where it's like, okay, I need to stand all the way up to my full height to let this person know that I'm not intimidated by them, but to move through the world easier, I'm not going to do that because it just sort of slows things down. 
What do you mean when you say it slows things down? You know, if you if you take up all the space you can in every room you're in, you're just naturally going to be taking up more space than you need to take up. Or if you realize that the amount of space you take up affects people in a negative way, and it's not that being tall is bad. I wouldn't trade it for anything. It's the it's one of the best things you can be. We get paid more. We're better looking according to statistics. You know, like so. I'm not. <laughs> I love being tall, but therefore I, I have the option to be a little bit shorter if I slouch because it's just like. You know, people say this to me all the time when they meet me from the show or even friends of mine. They're like, oh, you're taller than I thought. Or friends of mine haven't seen me in a while. I'll be like, I forgot how tall you were because I don't carry myself to my full height because there's a sense that a, being a big black guy is intimidating. And so I don't mind that. I just want to use it when I need it. You know, it's funny that you mentioned your dad being disappointed in you because that <laughs> <laughs> that episode of the show that's where you visit Mobile, where your dad lives, like that is basically – the undercurrent of everything that happens in the show. I mean, at one point you're you're with the prancing elites and all male like step dancing team. That probably isn't about you disappointing your dad, but like <laughs> all the rest of it is yeah. about you disappointing your dad. So it made me wonder, like, how much of your life, especially your adolescence and your early adulthood, was colored by the fact that you had a serious stern father who was the highest ranking African American person in the state government of Alabama and you had a mother who literally started her own business selling books that she published of uh, inspirational African American quotations like the the expectations <laughs> For achievement and, like, level of responsibleness and so on and so forth must have been extraordinary. I mean, it's, the funny thing about my dad is that I got this – I think the reason why my dad was disappointed in me is because he saw me as having all the opportunities he wished he had had in his life, you know, growing up in, in, in Mobile, Alabama, and how, how hard he had to work to to achieve what he got. And, you know, I think he definitely – surpassed anybody's expectations of him but he felt like he had to work a lot harder and also my dad when i was born he was not the highest ranking african-american official he was like a college dropout uh who then was like i gotta clean this up like he basically was like so i got to see him sort of like go through his rocky moment of dun 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 dun, like become the guy he is now and i think he's looking at me like you don't have to go through all that you don't have to be a college dropout and you can actually just start out and just do go to college finish I got into an Ivy League college. He was like, oh, my God, your whole life is set. Now that you're in this Ivy League college. And then when I dropped out after a year and a half, I, and then a year and a half after that, I was like, I think I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. He was just like, you're wasting all of the potential you had. <laughs> like, you know, I, like, you're disappointing every dead black person in our family right now. Why did you drop out of college? I, was at, I really think I was at the wrong college. And no, no offense to the University of Pennsylvania, but... I went to that school because it was in a big city. It was a good school. It was a pretty big school. But it's really a very pre-professional school. At least it felt like it at that point. And I think I really belonged at a more like, I should have gone to Oberlin, you know, or one of those <laughs> colleges where you get to this, you get to grade yourself. I should have gone to one of those schools. I want to play a clip from your show, The United Shades of America. And this is from the latest season. It's from the episode where you're in Mobile, which is where your dad lives and where you live for part of your childhood. And um, the two of you are, are at the beach and you're kind of looking out of the water. The water is getting kind of choppy and a little intense. And you're talking about how this isn't necessarily what people imagine when they imagine the American South. And you also talk about, you know, what it's like to be in a place where natural disaster is always waiting for you. There is some global warming that is occurring. And that has an effect in terms of warming bodies of oceans, in terms of what's going on in the atmosphere. Climate change is a real deal. The scientists say that it is. And, and it's undeniable. Yep, another Southern stereotype debunked. An older, church-going Southern man who believes in climate change. I always say there's a price you have to pay to live in paradise. And this is a little slice of paradise. I agree with you, and it makes me laugh to think there's people watching right now going, Alabama, a little slice of paradise. <laughs> Propaganda's finally got been to it. Man. He's been bamboozled, hoodwinked, led astray, run amok. <laughs> this is what he does. I think it was 
odd to watch this episode of the show with your dad on it because I was so used to you being a kind of cultural translator on your show Mm -hmm. that it was odd to hear you speak so directly about your own life. Yeah, I mean, I think that the only reason for me to do the show is to always be pushing myself to do new things and to also keep sort of peeling back the onion of myself and getting closer to the audience. So for me... There, there was a. We went out. I went out to go. Let's produce a more personal episode. Also, it was tied into the news of like people are sort of. I've known all throughout my life. People have put down the South. People who've never been to the South, living in California, living in Chicago. People condescend to the South quite easily without having been there. And having gone back and forth my whole life, I've done some of that too. But at least I've been there. You know. So for me, it was about like after the election, people are really condescending to the South. I think I can put a different spin on this because I spent a lot of time there. But at the same time. I want to actually be more personal in the episode. I don't people call me the host of United Shades and it's like I don't really feel like the host. I feel like it's just like come have this adventure with me. I wonder if you've ever had a place in the world like a group in the world that you felt comfortable belonging to. I mean, yeah, I mean there's a reason why I've like drawn a line in the sand and said I'm not moving out of the Bay Area again. Like I find my I find a lot of my people here. You know, but honestly, when I feel most at home is is probably in my house with my now three kids and my wife. Like, it just feels like we all get each other, right? And I feel like it's good because I feel like I'm raising more black weirdos, like, which is awesome. <laughs> Do you have expectations for your kids? Do you want your kids to be achievers? I mean, I think, you know, I mean, this is hard because every parent is, is, you know, totally biased, to use my own pun, uh, in this area. But... I feel like my kids have a really good sense of themselves. I mean, my youngest daughter is nine weeks old. She's still figuring it out. But my <laughs> oldest is seven, and my the middle is three and a half. And I can already see who they are. Me and my wife talk about this all the time. Their personalities are pretty definite. I can already see areas in which they excel in. And for me, it's just about like trying to provide an environment through which they can learn about themselves and find out what they want to do. Like I, you know, That's what my mom did for me. I think if I lived with my dad the whole time, then I might be the second African American insurance commissioner of Alabama. Like I think if I had, if I had just stayed with him, I'd be, we wouldn't be on this interview right now because I don't think you interview insurance commissioners. But <laughs> uh, but I think it's funny. Like so for my mom, it was just like providing some bumpers so you don't like go into the gutter too much. It's like you know, and so like just sort of like making sure that you have a space to find yourself. And I'm lucky through. Like, you know, like my new baby who was just born, I call her the Janet Jackson of the family because she was born into a family that was doing well, whereas Sammy's like the Michael Jackson where it's like she was born to this family that was trying to do well. <laughs> you know, like, so I feel like we, like she like using the privilege that I now have to sort of provide my kids with better opportunities while at the same time, the only thing I really push for them is gratitude and empathy. That's all because I feel like. You can have all this privilege, and you can be smart, and you can be good-looking and popular, but if you don't have gratitude and empathy and a, and a sense of generousness, then it doesn't mean anything. So that's the only thing I actually really – which is I didn't imagine that about myself as a parent that I'd be always talking about gratitude. But I think I'm so aware that in my career I'm pretty grateful for the fact that it ended up this way because you knew me for years when it was just like, I don't know what's going to happen with Kamau. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Not that you thought a lot about it, but I was just another comic, you know. And so I'm pretty grateful about, very grateful about where I ended up. And so I feel like with my kids, it's sort of this sort of this sense of like, yeah, we don't deserve this. We have this. We don't deserve it. So we have to make sure we treat it well and also our, use our privilege to help other people. I loved the sick episode of uh, your show. Um, for one thing, I genuinely did not know that it was pronounced sick and not seek. Uh, so... There's that. Uh, well, yeah, actually, I mean, there's members of the religion who still have to go back and forth and remind themselves. And you'll talk to older members of the community who still say seek. So it's like, you know, don't. It, that's one of those things where it's a if, if you're talking to a person who is a member of the community and they say seek, feel free to say seek. You shot most of this episode in Yuba City, California. Yep. And that is like not that far from. Los Angeles, where I live, or the Bay Area, where you live. No, it's like it's like th- it's less than three hours from where I live. It is also an entirely different place. Yeah, it's 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 the Texas part of California. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's like all the things that like 
people associate it's again it's like the south all the things people associate with california as far as like liberals and lefties and democrats and and kale eaters is not what's going on in the eastern part of california and it's pretty crazy to see a sick guy who is you know there's like these distinctive visual elements of uh, being a sick which is to say that you don't cut your beard you don't cut your facial hair and you wrap your hair, your head hair, which you don't also don't cut in a turban. But seeing someone like that also wearing a Western shirt, having a big belt buckle, and talking yep. with a vaguely Southern accent, yep, <laughs> is really a, a remarkable experience. And talking about how they're a fourth generation American, and you just, and I mean, I I'll take the credit. Like it's just hard. I even as somebody who's open and wants equity and and inclusion, my brain has a hard time looking at somebody with a turban and a beard saying fourth generation American. We'll finish up my interview with W. Kamau Bell when we return from a quick break. He'll tell me what he's most proud of on his show, United Shades of America. Then later, what if we have former NPR sports reporter Mike Pesca on to talk about crazy sports hypotheticals? We'll find out the answer soon. Stick around. That's my attempt at a hypothetical. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. In 1980, with a few thousand dollars and used dairy equipment, Ken Grossman founded Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Ken's award-winning ales propelled him from home brewer to craft brewer. Today, Ken and his family still own 100% of the company, one of the most successful independent craft breweries in America. More at SierraNevada.com. Hey, this is Stretch Armstrong. And this is Bobby Garcia, the hosts of What's Good. We're kicking off a new season with legendary singer-songwriter Erica Badu. That's why they call me Fat Belly Bella, because they never know when I'm going to be impregnated. <laughs> <laughs> Subscribe now. Beloved Maximum Fun Star Trek podcast, The Greatest Generation, is going out on tour. We are bringing Greatest Gen Con to a bunch of cities in the U.S. and Canada. It's our big tribute to slash send-up of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And we have a big leg coming up. Yes, we are raising our legs on a number of cities <laughs> in the coming weeks. We're going to Washington, D.C. on August 23rd. The Bell House in Brooklyn, New York on August 24th. Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts on August 25th. Pittsburgh on the 28th. Boston, Massachusetts at the Wilbur Theater on the 29th. Atlanta, Georgia at the Earl on the 30th. Ferndale, Michigan at the Magic Bag on the 31st. Those are some great big rooms and some great big cities, Ben. And it's a really fun show. It's accessible even if you haven't listened to the podcast yet. We can't wait to see you when we're out on tour. Check greatestgencon.com for dates and ticketing information. And Khan is spelled K-H-A-N because Wrath of Khan, greatestgenkhan.com. Welcome back to Bullseye. My guest is W. Kamau Bell. He hosts the show United Shades of America on CNN. Last year, it won the Emmy Award for Outstanding Unstructured Reality Program. It's up for the same award next month at the 2018 Emmys. I want to play a clip from your most recent stand-up special, which is called Private School Negro. Uh, it's on Netflix now. And you're talking about what it's like to be a parent in the Trump era. At the time, I think you had two kids and one on the way. Now you have three. Yes. And you start talking with more admiration than I've ever heard in your voice for anything ever about a television show called Doc McStuffins, um, which which you basically say is – Top three with The Wire and The Simpsons. Yeah. Doc McStuffins is about a little black girl who's six years old, and she's a doctor for her stuffed animals and toys. And she wears a stethoscope, and it's magical, and when it makes a sound, all the toys come to life. They don't explain how it works. I don't know, voodoo. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but when her toys have problems, like they break their arm or they're feeling tired, she tells them what to do. Like, you need to take a nap. Here's a cast. It's like, and she, so she's actively being a doctor on the show at a, as a six-year-old black girl. Have I blown your mind yet? <laughs> There's more. So it gets kids ready to go to the doctor, not afraid of the doctor, it, but it also teaches kids how to speak up for themselves in general. There was an episode about inappropriate touching. There was an episode where one of the stuffed animals was like, well, of course storms are getting worse. That's global warming. Holy 
Barack is more woke than our president. So you're African American. Your wife is white. So no, 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 I'm black. I'm not African American. I'm black. Okay, you're you're black. <laughs> Sorry, Kamal. You're black. Your wife is white. Yes. Your children uh, are the biological children of you and your wife. They're mixed race. Mm-hmm. Um, what is it like to have one intimate family member, your wife, who's white, and have kids who, just by the nature of how race works in America, will live their whole lives um, essentially as black? Like, are there things about that black experience that you have to communicate with your wife in order to help guide your kids? I mean, luckily, Melissa, my wife, is a she's an academic. She's got a Ph.D. I talked about that in my last special uh, semi-prominent Negro because I love the word (laughs) Negro. So she very much we were together for nine years before we were married and then 10 years before, you know, like. 12 years before we had Sammy, our, first, our oldest daughter. So we'd already had these conversations. It's also the same as, like, I'm the only man in the household. You know, like, so it's like, there's also this, like, there's I was one male and three females. So there's, like, things I have to know about. So it's like, we go back and forth in this. It's not like I have to, there's times we sat down and talked about things. There's times where we, you know, talked about race and we talk about racism. And sometimes I think I'm a little more interested in getting the pushing the conversation than Melissa is because I think she's more sensitive to like she's seven and I'm just like she's gotta know but <laughs> you know so there's things you negotiate but all parents negotiate these types of things but you know like Sammy's very aware that she's mixed very aware that she's black Juno who's three and a half who's actually much lighter skin than Sammy doesn't really understand herself as a black person yet and maybe her skin color will never catch up to a shade where white people will perceive her as black I think black people will because we know how to sort of sniff that out. But I think she will have to know that that's a part of her identity. But it is interesting to go, I don't know what where Juno's going to end up in her shade. She's still pretty light. And when we're with each other, I'm like we just traveled for the first time together, just the two of us. And I'm not sure that people were always aware that she was my daughter. Now, you know, I don't worry about that or I try not to. But I think a lot of these questions will reveal themselves over time just because their life experience is going to be so different than me and Melissa's. The thing I think is great is that in the 21st century – the mixed race conversation is so f- much further along than it was when I was a kid that they will have a lot of resources and a lot of friends to talk this through who will be smarter about it than their parents. What about the show are you the most proud of? I'm most proud of the fact that when we do uh, the best version of the show, that the people who are covered in the show then can use the show as a way to help lift the weight of prejudice. So, for example, The Sick Show is the best example of that. Like, we really worked closely with them, even, like, re-recording some of the pronunciation, which is still not great. But just to go, they thought, they were like, you could do a better job of pronouncing some of these words. And so that, like, it's not just, like, a journalist goes in and just tells the story and leaves. But it's really important to me, as somebody who's going in as a human who happens to have the job of comedian, to to serve the community in a way that they can actually point to it and go, if you want to know more about us, go to this thing. So, for example, the San Quentin episode in the first season that you played a clip of is a great example of that. The people, the, the we screened that episode in San Quentin. Uh, we took it back there, and I was super nervous because what if they just hated it? And throughout the episode, they just clapped and cheered and laughed, and just felt like. And I got a standing ovation. It was like one of the most, you know, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now. Just the fact that they felt like finally somebody actually sees us and is letting us tell our story. So to me, that's my favorite thing about the show is when we get it right. And my least favorite thing is when we get it wrong and those communities come back and go, that's not what it is. <laughs> so like, And then I feel like, well, we need to go back and try better. Well, Kamal, congratulations on all the success on the show. Congratulations on your Emmy nomination this year. And uh, I'm, I'm so glad for all of it. It's really well-deserved. No, and I went and right back to you. I really appreciate the fact that we were once at, at <laughs> UC Santa Cruz in a college radio station talking about what was going to happen, and we're actually doing those things in an actual weird forest. <laughs> yes, yes, in a forest on a hill. <laughs> um, thanks, Bud. Thank you. W. Kamau Bell. His show, United Shades of America, is available to stream right now on Hulu. It's also nominated for an Emmy. You can find out if it won next month. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
Okay, real quick, some questions for you. What if baseball teams only played once a week? What if Title IX never was? Or if basketball rims were smaller than basketballs? These are excellent questions. You don't need to be a sports fan to see that. And good news, they're all answered in a new book, Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. It's a collection of essays from over 30 different writers, people ranging from Robert Siegel to Nate DeMeo to Jesse Eisenberg and more, all asking, then answering thoughtfully, hypothetical questions about sports that range from the trivial to the existential. The book was compiled by Mike Pesca, and if you know who Mike Pesca is, that won't surprise you. He's a sports nut, obviously, a lifelong Jets, Mets, and Knicks fan who called into his first sports talk show at 10 years old. He was a sports reporter here at NPR for a long time. He still contributes every now and then. He also hosts The Gist, a daily podcast over at Slate, where he covers the news of the day. But more importantly, Mike Pesca is a man who loves arguing over a good hypothetical, really teasing it out exploring every possible outcome. So, if you're a writer and you've been thinking to yourself, what would happen if football had been deemed too boring in 1899? There's literally no one better to take it up with than Mike Pesca. Let's get into the interview. Mike Pesca, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you back on the show. It's been a long time. Back. Back. Was I bat? Was I here when it was Bullseye? I don't know. Well, maybe not when it was Bullseye. Certainly when it was right. the Sound of Young America in the olden yeah. days. And I'm Ooh, uh, spanning gr- the eras. And I'm grateful to get to talk to you again on the show. I'm going to give you the ultimate softball question of all softball questions, Mike. Why did you want to write a book about uh, what ifs in sports history? So. As you know, I I covered sports for about seven years for NPR, and I would go to the World Series and the Super Bowl and World Cups and things like that, and there'd be confetti and a winner. And I got to reflecting on my own sports fandom, which includes New York teams, Jets, Mets, and St. John's. And in the course of my entire life, my teams have won one championship. And as (laughs) as I was sitting there with the confetti, I got to say, it did occur to me, what if my teams had won. And that is a sort of cheap reverie that that can instill. But as I got to thinking about it more, I, f- I figured that if we imp- if we applied some structure to the question, because usually what if just means if only, you know, if only this guy hadn't gotten hurt or that referee hadn't blown the call, then our team would have won championships. But if we applied some structure and some rules, we went from if only, and I I can't believe my team has, you know, blown eight drafts in a row to what I think are 31 interesting chapters for everyone to consider that include things like rippling throughout history and history lessons or just, you know, flat out funny bits of whimsy. So that's how it started and that's how it finished. Is this just a function of the fact that you enjoy arguing? I do enjoy I do enjoy a debate. And so a lot of these can be, a lot of the essays, I think, are great versions of a thesis pursued. You know, Ben Lindbergh, busting out the charts on what if baseball had tested for steroids, you know, in 1991. And after you read that, you you would say to yourself, that clearly is what would have happened. Um, others are things that you didn't ever think about, like Jason Gay writing, what if football were deemed too boring in 1899? It's like, well, w- w- was that possible? Turns out it was. It was a very boring sport, also a deadly sport. Kind of interesting that you could have both a lot of deaths and Theodore Roosevelt had to intervene to stop the bloodshed, but also incredibly boring. When you say a lot of deaths, I mean, like, literally a lot of people died on the football field each year. Yes. Dozens. Yes. That's right. And it got to the president's attention, who, because he was a hell fellow, well met and believed in the manly pursuits, he wanted to save football. And essentially, he created the NCAA and we have football as a result. But I don't know that that was a debate. Right. So I don't think there's a debate over what if football were deemed too boring. That's just a flight of fancy or come with me along this journey as I tease out the implications to the, to this thing you probably haven't ever thought about. And then the second to last 
last chapter in the book is Claude Johnson writing, what if Nat Sweetwater Clifton's pass had not gone awry in like 1947? Definitely not something I'd ever even considered because I didn't know what happened. So that's using a what if to tell us a history lesson, which is about something I had never known, which is the essentially the integration of the NBA. Before there was an NBA, there were these great barnstorming African-American basketball teams. We know the Harlem Globetrotters, the Harlem Wrens were even better. And they all got together with the white teams and all the other teams in this like huge basketball jamboree. And from there, the greatest team was named. Claude Johnson runs a foundation that studies this era in history. And I was just happy to have, you know, found a way to get this history lesson in my book. Were there things that you had on a notepad that you thought, I'm going to find somebody for these ones because these ones are things that I think about all the time? Yes. I don't know about all the time. I think that because I uh, I have the GIST podcast and because I have all the, you know, there's a lot occupying my mental space. Sometimes you're reading the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Well, you know this. You have You have a few outlets. And so I would imagine... Well, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Like, do you just randomly think of ideas and then say, ah, this can go in that show or this can go in the other show? Or do you kind of start thinking about a show and then generating ideas for the show? Mike, you you presume that I think. Yes. <laughs> so to answer your question, what I really did was I contacted smart people who'd write good chapters. And I said to them, hey, Robert Siegel, what do you want to do? Hey, uh, Stefan Fatsis, what do you want to do? And I got about 15 to 17 chapters that way. And then I began backfilling it with, well, we need a good hockey chapter. Katie Baker is a great writer. Want to write about Wayne Gretzky? The answer is yes. And then with so- sometimes it was just serendipity. I kind of thought Nate DeMeo, uh, who does the Memory Palace podcast, podcast would be good to write a chapter because I know he's very funny and I know he wrote the the book about Pawnee, the fake history of Parks and Rec. And so he's very good with fooling people into thinking that this thing that didn't happen really did. So on a lark, I gave I gave him a call and DeMeo said, what if the Olympics had never dropped tug of war? And I literally said, I've never thought of that, but clearly you have. Go for it. <laughs> What was the topic that surprised you the most? I would say it's the the chapter on the Nat Sweetwater Clifton because I had never even known that this huge uh, dra- basketball jamboree had ever existed and the implications of it. But then, I don't know if you know John Boyce from SB Nation. He's just a brilliantly insane, funny guy. So I would say it was surprising when he when I said, would you like to write a chapter? And then maybe a day and a half later, he gave me this fully formed chapter. And it was, what if the basketball rims were smaller than the basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like uh, it would be I, problematic, Mike. Well, um, every game in the history of the league has ended in a 0-0 tie, <laughs> except the one that he uh, provides the expansive TBS transcript for uh, the, ga- the one game where there was a goaltending. I don't want to ruin things, but let's just say Reggie Miller is as pedantic if the ball can't go in as if the ball could. <laughs> I enjoyed reading about my favorite basketball team, the Golden State Warriors, a team which I hasten to point out because it's 2018, has been my favorite basketball team since the late 1980s. Traveling in time to face the great teams of the past. Yes. Can you tell me about that thought experiment? Mm Mm-hmm. So this was the last chapter added to the book. And let me tell you what occasioned this chapter. It was the fact that the Golden State Warriors are great and we'd like to try to quantify how much greatness they have within them. But more the proximate cause, as the historians might say, was that Ethan Sherwood Strauss was fired by ESPN. There was this round of firings and I immediately said, terrible for Ethan, horrible for sports writing in general. Uh, Warriors coach Steve Kerr actually weighed in opining that ESPN was stupid to fire Ethan. But since Ethan was now a free agent, if I, if I learn nothing else from sports, got to pick up the free agents when they're on the market. I said, Ethan, would you like to do this? And the great thing about that chapter is it's not a very, ner- well, it's sufficiently nerdy for as a basketball chapter. If you love basketball, 
it's you would you would really get off on the fact that when the the Warriors, the current Warriors, go back to play Michael Jordan's Chicago Bulls, he really takes into account the different way rules were enforced at the time, roster construction, what we thought of the three point line. So definitely the basketball nerds are serviced. But if you're a sci fi fan, there's a lot of details in good. There's a lot of details in there. It works well as a sci fi chapter. Yeah, I mean he really writes the looper or primer of basketball <laughs> fandom yeah pretty much uh now by the way i happen to know that even though the golden state warriors are your favorite team probably when they were terrible basketball wasn't your favorite pursuit <laughs> now probably it is <laughs> mike what was it like to be one of the what is it two sports reporters at npr yeah well my, I was the second one to join, and that really doubled the sports department. So that really, really increased our brief. Um, Tom Goldman being the other one. It was great because pretty quickly I learned to understand the audience and how to communicate with the audience in a way that gave me pleasure and them pleasure. And the two um, rules I had were well, they always say in radio to talk to one person, have a, have a listener in mind. And that's nice in the abstract, but I don't know if anyone really does it, but I literally did it. I thought of my high school friend, Jason Whitney, who loves sports and would not want to be bored uh, by listening to NPR and hearing stuff that he already knew and hearing phrases like the three-point line in basketball, which confers three points upon a made basket. And literally early on, one editor who wound up not being my actual editor said that I need to define what the three-point line was. So this is where we were. But I thought of this guy, and I thought of, I will never bore him with a sport sports report. But then I also thought of my NPR listening cousins who care nothing about sports. And I said, and I will always interest her with my sports report. Now, how do you do both those things? I had some tricks. I had some techniques. But that's what I always tried to do with a sports report. And it's very easy to say on NPR, you know, the audience isn't a sports audience. It's okay if you slow down and hold their hand. You don't want to lose them. I guess, but that really, I think, gives you too much slack and too much leeway to disappoint the person in the audience who is a sports fan. So the way to do sports on NPR is a little is definitely different from the way to do sports on ESPN, but it's not just taking out the jargon or the advanced statistics. It's not just the Olympics technique of telling a gauzy, feel-good story about the person. There are a lot of other ways that the NPR audience really responds to sports. Does sports belong on NPR? Definitely, because they're a very important thing in society. They're a glimpse into, uh, into well, they're a passion of people. They are a great metaphor. And the other reason is, just from a real practical standpoint, you can have two hours of ATC, all things considered, and just, just never-ending, relentless downers of stories. And then there comes three and a half minutes where something exciting and interesting and newsworthy and nonfiction happens, and it is such a respite. I found that my reports were really valued um, in the days when people would only listen to All Things Considered a Morning Edition as a radio show. So the concept was you were getting however long your listening period was, but it could be up to two hours, it could be 45 minutes, and people and so you would program the show to have different programmatic elements. And the element that I offered with sports report was just different. It wasn't always uplifting. It could be a very serious report, but it was just different in tone in this in the same way that, you know, so sometimes it might be a sorbet. Sometimes it might be a salsa. Sometimes it might be just, you know, a different cut of meat than what was being served all the time. And that's really important if you're programming an interesting and diverse radio show. Why don't you work at NPR anymore? Um, I loved working at NPR, and it was very satisfying to have that huge audience. But I would, uh, I felt I was a little bit underused. I don't know if I was underappreciated. I had so many friends from NPR, and I felt the bosses definitely liked me. But, you know, there were just more things that I wanted to and could say that were off the beat of sports. I could have changed my beat and reported on, um, I don't know, some you know, uh, water usage in the West. Okay, then I would have definitely quit. But I could have I could have changed my beat, but then I'd have to report on that beat. I suppose I could become a general assignment 
reporter in New York, but it was all still limiting. And then I went to this show, The Gist. I created this show. And just talk about the two or three things. I do an interview every show, and I talk about two or three things that are occurring to me every show. One's a short thing, and then at the end's a long thing, which is called the spiel, which would be considered a column if it were in a newspaper or a host piece if it were on the radio. I didn't know if I could generate enough uh, ideas for this. I found out after doing it for now over a thousand episodes, that's not the problem. It's not actually generating the ideas. It's focusing the ideas and executing the ideas. So I was having all these ideas that were going no place. So I found a way to uh, create a place for all these ideas and thoughts to go. We'll get to the rest of my interview with Mike Pesca when we come back from a quick break. You might have noticed it in his voice, but Mike's from Long Island. We'll talk about what it's like to have a strong regional accent in public radio. He worked for NPR for years. And his take on it is pretty perceptive. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message comes from Starbucks. Introducing new Starbucks Plus Coffee K-Cup Pods, the coffee that keeps up with you. With twice the caffeine compared to one pod of Starbucks K-Cup coffee, it's an extra boost to help you make the most of your day. Available in Starbucks Blonde, Medium, and Dark Roast K-Cup pods for the rich taste you love. Look for new Starbucks Plus coffee where you buy groceries. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, one of your new hosts for On Point. We take on the news with the smartest guests and live calls from every corner of the country. NPR's David Folkenflik hosts the Friday Week in the News. Join David and me for On Point. I can't hear myself, but I'm assuming. These are real podcast listeners, not actors. Hey, thanks for coming. Here's a list of descriptors. What would you choose to describe the perfect podcast? I mean, vulgarity. Dumb. Definitely dumb. And like... Uh, Right here, this one. Meritless. What if I told you there was a podcast that did have all of that? No. Jordan, Jesse, Go. And it's free. Jordan, Jordan, Jesse, Go? Go. Jordan, Jesse, Go. Jordan, Jesse, Go. A real podcast. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Mike Pesca. He's the host of the daily podcast, The Gist. You might have heard him here on NPR, too, where he talks about sports from time to time. He just came out with a new book. It's called Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. Do you listen to talk radio outside of public radio-style talk radio? Yeah, but on podcasts. Um, I don't really listen over the air too much, but I seek out the stuff that's over the air on podcasts. Sometimes I think that folks that I meet in the public radio world haven't really heard hot talk or sports talk or even non-public radio news talk. Yeah, I get that impression. I mean, I think it's true. Like I would uh I would sometimes make a reference to not Rush Limbaugh, he's known, but people who dominate the local markets to uh, other public radio people in the market, and they've never heard of them. And that's strange to me. And I'm not even talking about sports radio. I'm talking about a guy like John Montone on the New York uh, WINS, the Give Us 22 Minutes, We'll Give You the World. And, you know, I I would talk to a news person. I said, oh, yeah, that's like a John Montone story. And they'd be like, what? I'm like, don't you understand? He has five times the listeners you do. He's affecting the conversation much more than he than we are. I want to play a clip of you. And this is not from your show, The Gist, uh, which is a wonderful show that you do for Slate. This is you guest hosting an NPR show a couple of years ago. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and the NPR show in question is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the wonderful news quiz show ordinarily host, hosted by Peter Sagal. Um, and you're doing a guest interview. So the first thing I want to do, and I know you're here to talk about your book about selfies, but the first thing I want to do is I think the biggest thing in your life, I hear that you and your husband, Kanye West, are expecting your second child, and can the reports be confirmed? Is it a boy? We actually haven't told anyone the sex. So I heard that we're having a boy. I heard that we're having twins. I heard that I'm not even carrying my own baby. I've heard so many things. (laughs) And most of the information is not true. Okay. Well, 
If anyone needs their privacy respected. <laughs> um, that was Kim Kardashian West, of course, yeah. uh, the reality television star and empresaria. I have to say, I didn't catch yeah. this live. I listened to it later that week, and I thought she was uh, delightful. Charming. Totally charming. You're like, okay, that's why she's so successful. She's good at this. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the reaction that you and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me got from that interview? Yes. So the guest was charming. And let's also put into context for the six listeners who don't know, what kind of show is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me? Oh, it's what, a it's... light entertainment program. <laughs> right, right. So it is not tasked with breaking down the uh, Korean missile talks. No, um, although I'm sure Paula Poundstone would have something uh, amusing to say about the uh, Korean missile talks at any given time. I, I mean, I hope she's tabbed to be a negotiator. So <laughs> that may I, end up happening, Mike. Yes. I would I would describe the reaction as a deluge of of muck. I mean, NPR, and this was, I think, at a time when the comment sections were open and people would write in just in conventional, I, I suppose, quill pens to parchment. It seemed that no one liked that interview, that they were upset that this is not what we turn to NPR for. And there was a little bit of a backlash to that. But man, was NPR slammed, was Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me slammed for infecting the ears of listeners for the eight minutes of that very pleasant and funny purpose of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me to be funny, funny interview. Yeah, it wasn't. They, they didn't like it. How did you feel about that at the time? Uh, I kind of like that they didn't like it because... <laughs> <laughs> Just because it's not your show? Yeah, it's not my... I love to ruin things and then move on. I'll tell you a couple of reasons why. I remember reading this. Th there was this guy who used to do uh, audience surveys about NPR, and he uh, he created... like A lot of these consultants will create these categories. Why do people listen to NPR? One is the news gatherer, and one is the um, facilitator. But there is a category, the monk. And what the monk uses NPR for is to shut out the... Uh, vicissitudes of the outside world. The NPR is a oasis from being sullied by the culture. And I think we were hearing from the loudest and nastiest of the monks. And don't think that NPR doesn't have loud, nasty people within its uh, very, very polite confines. It does. Um, and, and we kind of struck at People have a real relationship with NPR, and some of those people, that relationship is part of their identity, and we kind of force them into listening for seven or eight minutes the totemic antithesis of what their identity was, and they didn't like it, and they didn't know how to process it, and also I think the monk is much more likely to write letters. So that was one reason why I think that was one phenomenon that was going on. But another was I liked that people got so upset because I think in our culture, everything is just that that phrase, oh, it's all good. And there's no tension or pushback in terms of pop culture and what is right and what is wrong. I read this review of Groucho Marx once and he said, now everyone's the Marx brothers. It's just that we've run out of Margot Dumont's. And so I kind of like the idea that out there, there are still these kind of persnickety blue noses so that once you do something, quote unquote, transgressive, it actually does transgress, right? It's not like experimental theater, which is supposed to confront the audience. But of course, everyone who bought a ticket wants some version of the audience that doesn't exist to be confronted. So I like that. I like that they hate Kim Kardashian and hated me for interviewing her. Mike, can I ask you about your manner of speech? Yes. So ordinarily, the type of talking that generates complaints in public radio and in my experience in podcasting as well is uh, aspirated vowels uh -huh. and up talk, things that people associate with young women. Right. Vocal fry, in other words. Mm -hmm. You don't do that. Right. But you do have... A regional accent. Yeah. You talk like a guy from the New York, New Jersey area because, spoiler alert, you're a guy from the New York, New Jersey area. <laughs> That's true. Why is it so unusual for someone who hosted a program in public radio to have a regional accent? 
And I say that as a dude who, because I'm from San Francisco and have one parent from the East Coast and one parent from the Midwest, I have uh, an accent that only a linguist would recognize as a, as a regional accent. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that some are more countenanced. I mean, okay, I don't know if it, Wade Goodwin's accent is celebrated or Wade's booming baritone is celebrated or just Wade is celebrated, but if anyone would ever complain about the way Wade Goodwin speaks, them's fighting words. I think <laughs> Eleanor Eleanor Beardsley, maybe it's the fact that she brings a little Southern twang to her beat in France. That seems to not be a problem to anyone. I do think it's that the New York accent is seen as less intelligent. The same kind of person that, so is the Southern accent. I'll say that too, but maybe there's something also authentic about the Southern accent that a, people feel more snobbish if they put it down. Whereas the New York accent, I don't know, maybe strikes people as unintelligent or less evolved, the people who want to use public radio as an escape. That's why in my life, I've been slowly assembling a list of extremely intelligent people with thick New York accents, or at least very discernible New York accents, Mario Cuomo, Pete Hamill. I've got a list of these guys who talk like New Yorkers. You know, Denzel Washington's on that list, and Spike Lee is too. They, They have a specific kind of accent that's very New York. So I love those kind of accents. I would discount the people who, you know, uh, chafe against it. But the other thing I'd say about that is I have talked to women. They say that, you know, women, only women's voices are policed. Many, many women who I uh, talk to who are podcasters will say, I'm always getting letters from guys talking about the, how high my voice is or the vocal fry or the up talk. And only women are policed in this manner. I will say this. Women are stupidly policed in that manner. But on my show one time, I read 15 emails from listeners essentially saying, take this marble mouth guy off the air. He can't talk. Uh, drown him in the Gowanus Canal. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I'm glad you have that list of smart people with heavy New York accents. It complements my 15-minute clip reel of... Smart people who I admire using the word hella. (laughs) How do you make time in your life for the media consumption you have to do to do a daily program? That's my job. I did think, you know, when I was a sports reporter, I would, of course, still read at least one paper. And I did think, well, I'm doing this anyway, but I... I'm not going to say force myself. It's it's a pleasure and I'm interested in the news, but it is my job. So I put, you know, the news in front of me. There are times when I'm reading through the paper or reading um, the foreign policy flashpoints memo or the uh, Brookings three big ideas of the day where or Walt Hickey's numlock or some other source where I could that could spark an idea which is interesting and they do it does spark ideas but I do tell myself you know if I didn't have this show if I didn't have this beast to feed I probably wouldn't be reading you know six um six newsletters a day maybe we'd be down to two I mean you have a family to take care of Mike yeah well you know they're free range at this point do you still have an oil <laughs> painting of your dog in your office <laughs> rummy he's uh uh, it's a little sensitive, but that's the one uh, actual physical uh, point of disagreement in the divorce. Oh. We're actually literally wrangling over that. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mike. Well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to be on Bullseye. Uh, it's always great to get to talk to you, and I, I love and admire your work so much. Well, uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jesse. I normally say you're welcome, but I really mean it. Thank you for having me. Mike Pesca. Upon Further Review is out now. It's a really fun read. Go pick it up. You can listen to Mike every weekday on Slate's The Gist podcast, too. It is fun, funny, and really enlightening. Mike is a genuinely brilliant guy. Every week on Bullseye, we like to give you a recommendation before we leave. It's called The Outshot. From the moment that she sits down at the piano, she is everything. For all of us here at Fillmore West, this is a long-awaited privilege and a great pleasure to bring on the number one lady, Miss Aretha.
Aretha Franklin recorded live at the Fillmore West in San Francisco in 1971. The Fillmore was a rock venue, and the repertoire in the concert reflects it. She opens with respect, then and now her greatest hit. But then she takes a hard turn into rock and roll covers. They probably figured the place was full of hippies, it being the Fillmore and San Francisco and all. Stephen Stills' Love the One You're With is track two. It's a scorcher. Eleanor Rigby and Bridge Over Troubled Water follow. The band is led by King Curtis, the legendary saxophonist, and they never let the energy slacken. Even the profoundly corny ballad Make It With You by the band Bread is honestly fantastic when Aretha is singing it. By the time Aretha brings the show back around, asking the audience, does anybody feel like hearing the blues, they are absolutely frenzied. And she delivers seven roiling, boiling minutes of Dr. Feelgood that tear the house down. The climax, though, is Spirit in the Dark. It was Aretha's own song, a hit the year before. They run through it, and she is shaking the place to the foundations. And then someone spots Ray Charles in the house. He comes up to join her. The Memphis horns are slamming out the brass refrain. Pretty Purdy's banging his way through the drum lines. And you can imagine slipping on the sweat on the floor. The two people who created soul music, who exploded what American music could be, are there together on stage. An incredible moment. Would you play just a little bit? hard to say goodbye to Aretha, a ferocious genius, the greatest of American singers. But I hold her in my heart, just like those folks in San Francisco, and just like you, and just like everybody who ever heard her sing or play a piano. She's gone now, but she sure worked it out while she was here.
That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters. Overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where along Wilshire Boulevard, the parking meters have been removed. Repeat, the parking meters have been removed. That is a tremendous Los Angeles parking value. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien, our production fellows at Max Fun, our Jesus Ambrosio and Shana Deloria. Our senior producer at Max Fun is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was provided to us by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme song was recorded by the Go Team. Our thanks to the Go Team and to their label, Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free and available to you. You can find them in your favorite podcast app at MaximumFun.org or on YouTube. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I'm on Twitter, at Jesse Thorne. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 